I'm Jenny Galuzzo, co-founder of The Second Shift. Welcome to our podcast where we talk all things women, work, and well-being, how they intersect, our competing forces, and how to create and maintain personal and professional alignment in your life. Let's do this. I am so excited to introduce you to friend and colleague, Emily Tish Sussman. Emily is the host of a podcast called She Pivots, and it's about women, their stories, and how pivoting brought them success. So clearly she's very aligned with our community and the idea of having to shift in and out of your career journey and owning that story and your optionality in life both personally and professionally. Emily started her career as a political strategist, then became a consultant, and she's a lawyer, and she has three children. And now she, like Emily does anything, she doesn't do something small. So she started a podcast, and now all of a sudden it's this like huge media company that she's building, and she's gotten all of these awards, and she's just an incredibly dynamic and purposeful and authentic person who stands for what she believes in is it totally unafraid to throw herself into something that she thinks can have a giant impact or any impact really. So this podcast episode is about Emily's own personal story, her own personal journey, her pivot, as well as the stories of those women that she interviews, people like Kamala Harris, the vice president, and Dr. Becky Kennedy and Brooke Shields, really women who have achieved a huge level of success, who have, for whatever reason, had to or wanted to pivot their lives and how they went through that journey. Not just like, oh my God, I did this and now I'm a huge success. Like, what was like the dark night of the soul? Like, what kind of tools did you use? What were the emotions that you felt? It's really raw. It's really interesting podcast. And Emily is just fantastic. I feel like along the way, our like life journeys have like melded. And so it's always been so fun to talk with you because all the things that I'm like really passionate about, like politics and women's empowerment and helping women professionally and in their own personal lives as families are the things that you also are like incredibly passionate about. So every time I see you, I just, am like, we could talk forever. So this opportunity to get to just have this conversation and put it out there is really fun for me. I know me too. I feel like when I found out about second shift, I was like, oh wait, that's somebody doing the thing that I thought should be in the world. Like, I'm so happy you're doing it. (laughs) It's really funny how many people say that to me or will be like, I did my MBA project on that, you know, that business idea. And I I can't believe somebody actually did it. You're like, I did and it works. It turns out it actually works. (laughs) Turns out if everyone has the same idea, somebody just has to do it. Exactly. Well, thank goodness you're the one that did it. Yeah. Well, you're very welcome. And it's fun. You know, you've created a life and a professional career that has taken on a life of its own in a lot of ways and also been kind of windy. And in different points of your life, you've had to bob and weave and you've had kids and you've moved. And it's really, it shows what all women kind of go through and why something like the second shift is needed because there are places and times when you have to pivot and you have to change. Tell the people listening about your own personal journey that took you through the different shifts of your life. 
Yeah. So my background, most of my professional career is as a political strategist, like a federal political strategist. So I worked in 2004. My first job out of college was on a presidential campaign. I went to law school. I moved to Washington. Oh, I worked on the Obama campaign in 2008. Then I moved to Washington and I worked on federal policy and I loved it. Like I really, really loved what I did. We changed the world. Like we changed the country. Like it felt like we were doing something and we were, and I was good at it. And the more I did it, I realized that I was good at it, but it meant that personally, like you got to work all the time. Like there's really not another way to work on policy and campaigns. It is what it is. And I, I actually don't think you can kind of balance it. <laughs> like, I just think it's kind of not, it's kind of not possible. Like if the stakes are that high, like you do just kind of have to work all the time which I loved. Like I'm generally kind of naturally high energy and high intensity. And it was a really good environment for me. So in Washington, in my first job, I was the lead lobbyist on the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell under the Obama administration. Then I ran the Young Democrats of America for Obama's reelect in 2012. And in that time, I started going on cable news as a cable news commentator. Was that fun or was that scary for you? Uh, mostly fun, sometimes scary. <laughs> mostly fun. I mean, I started on Fox News and I did throughout my commentary career, did mostly Fox News. Just to set the stage, you are not somebody who has the same politics as Fox News. So no, you no. were putting yourself in a position to be adversarial and also to know you're going to get attacked. So as a young woman in politics, how did you have the guts to do that? Yeah, that's a great question. No, no, I'm a democratic strategist. Yeah. <laughs> so I was on there. They would only book me if I was on against a Republican so that it was a debate segment. So it was fair and balanced. Yes, exactly. So I was like showing the opposite side for them. And it was really interesting to see like the evolution of the network over the 10 years that I did it, you know, what fair and balanced meant to them, what kind of segments they would give me how involved the host would get in the conversation, like whether they wanted to be a news show or whether they wanted, I mean, sometimes it would be the host arguing with me more than the Republican guest. Uh, yeah, no, I would, I would think that. Was <laughs> it, did you ever like leave and feel crazy? Like, did it make you feel like more purposeful in what you had to do or did it actually make you feel like depressed and crazy? Um, most of the time I felt more purposeful. Like part of the reason I kept doing it and prioritizing it in my schedule and prioritizing it in my time is that, I would see the other Democrats that they would book on Fox News and they they didn't work in my field. Like they were just like one random person who democratically held views who would fight on air. And so that is generally who they would book in the Democratic strategist slots. So I did feel empowered by it. Like I felt good doing it. I felt like I was actually maybe moving the needle. Like I didn't think I was going to change the minds of the audience, but I felt like if they could at least find me less horrible than they thought most Democrats were... <laughs> <laughs> then maybe we're making some inroads. Like maybe we can do something with that. Set the bar really low so it's not as scary. Yeah, so it felt great. It felt great all the time. No, but I mean, I had to think on my feet. They would change the topics on me. I mean, after I did a segment on Bill O'Reilly, I told them I would never go on the show again because I felt like they lied to me and they switched the topics on air to set me up. And, you know, like we were in a business relationship. Like they booked me to talk about something that I knew about. And when they changed it to talk about something else I was not prepared for, that did happen sometimes on air, but I felt like in this case, they had really set me up for it. And I was like, well, you don't get me anymore. Like if this is how you're going to treat your democratic strategist, then you don't get me anymore. I'll go on other shows. I did that for a long time. I did it for about 10 years. It was never my main job, but it was always part of what I did. It was a little bit into the Trump presidency that I actually stopped going on because I felt like 
one, I felt like the tenor of the hate mail that I got was much more violent. I mean, I always got hate mail, but I felt like it was much more specific and much more violent. It was after the tree of life shooting when I was like, I just can't do this anymore. And I also saw that who the network was booking and the directions they were going in. And I felt like they weren't even trying anymore. Like they wouldn't even have on Republicans who didn't support Trump. And so I thought if I'm doing something here, like if I'm on here, not just because I want to hear my own voice, but because I actually think I might possibly be moving the needle in some hearts and minds, I don't think I'm accomplishing that anymore. And so that balance wasn't there for me anymore. So if I stopped doing Fox specifically, <laughs> but I... <laughs> But I stayed as a cable news commentator. I mean, it was, about, it was about 10 years in total. And I had my first kid in the Trump election in 2016. I went back after my maternity leave the Monday after the election. So, I mean, everybody thinks their workplaces were sobbing and a mess. My workplace was, was actually called the White House in waiting. Like that's what people used to call it because everybody had a job going into the quote Clinton administration. So people didn't even know what they were supposed to be doing all day. Like they didn't have anything to do. It was so depressing. But I came in with this new mom, I have to prove myself focus because I felt like I had to be proving that I was the same worker as when I had not had kids. So I came in like hyper-focused and it ended up leading a lot of our transformation into the Trump administration. Remember, we were federal think tank, lobby tank, like that really matters who's in power. And then I went into my second maternity leave, about a third into the Trump administration and going back into it, going back to the office, I was like, I just can't do this. Like, what am I doing? Like, I suddenly have two kids under one and a half. I don't know how to be a parent. I don't feel particularly connected to my kids. Like, it's not that I want to spend time with them. It's that I can't figure out how to be the worker that I was before. I need a pause. I have to rethink this. I have to step back. So I didn't go back at the end of my second maternity leave and I started doing political consulting. I ran the surrogates program for Swing Left for 2018. That was super fun. You know, got to get back into like the campaign mindset of it. I started a political podcast then, but then 2020 going into the presidential, I was like, all right, now I know how to have kids and work in politics. I'm going to do it. I got this. And then I had my third kid three weeks before the COVID lockdown. Aye. So suddenly I had a two-year-old, three-year-old, and three-week-old, and my whole vision of how I was going to work in politics was predicated on having a support system and predicated on having childcare, which I no longer had. And I just saw it in real time. Like I saw my political career evaporating in front of me. I didn't have the bandwidth to work on a campaign. I didn't have enough childcare, quite frankly, to be able to have enough dedicated hours in a day to be working. And I just saw that like, if you're not in it, like in politics and in media, where I've always sort of worked at the intersection of like, if you're not on the latest thing, you have no value. Like you are useless. You don't have relevant information. And that was so unbelievably crushing to me because it wasn't just that I love to do it. It wasn't just that I wanted to change the world. You know, like I wanted to elect the next president. Like I didn't have an identity besides for being a political strategist. And I didn't know, I just didn't know how to get out of it. So I started thinking about, okay, I have to know there's a way out of this. <laughs> but did you take did you take time off? In my own personal experience, yeah. I went into TV with the idea in college and after college that like I'm going to be a foreign correspondent or like Diane Sawyer. Like that's my life. That's all I ever wanted. And it's like an intoxicating world when you're in it. 
And it's like, it's a very hard thing to give up just because of the pace of it and the power and the, like the knowledge base that you have, all of the things. And it feels purposeful and you're driven and it's so exciting. And then to not do it. In my case, I was like, I don't really want this life and I don't really think I'm that good at it. So I don't see that this is going to become what I want it to be. And so I have to like change the dream because this isn't something that I think is attainable and like I need to be realistic. And it was so upsetting to me. And I have another friend who like, did the same thing. And she left after like being on presidential campaigns. And we still like for years, we would see each other and talk about how it was a hard one to go. And it took a long time to like, you know, I'm still a news junkie, but it took a long time to to see that I could make a change and be helpful in a different way. So I'm just wondering in that time period between like the dream dies and then you build a new one, what's happening there? I'm mostly just sad. There was not. (laughs) Like I tried to do like a bunch of different jobs and I was like, this is not for me. This is just like trying. I I would have done that except it was COVID. Oh yeah, that's true. And you had three little kids. so And I had three like very little kids who were being incredibly demanding because their world has now all been turned upside. I mean, we moved eight times in the middle of it. So like all of that was happening, but I didn't know how to take a pause. Like I did, and I didn't know how to do anything else. Like I didn't know how to get another job or like try another field. This is why I started the second shift because I couldn't figure out how to get another job or try another field. So I was like, there's other people out there like me and there's gotta be a way to like find them jobs. And by the way, I hear it constantly. Like it's more than just a little number of, more than just a small number of people that can't (laughs) figure it out. Like now that I'm similarly in this space, openly talking about this, women come up to me constantly all the time saying, well, you know, I'm not sure that I know how to make a change. I'm not sure if I can do anything else. I'm send not sure. Send them to me. I can tell them how. I can send them to you. And, you know, I think people yeah. end up being really product focused or they think about like what they want to put out or what they want to create. But I think they should be thinking about what they want, how they want to be spending their time. Yes. Like what they and and a lot of people make a mistake because they like, are like, I'm going to start this thing and I'm going to create this product or I'm going to open this store. And then they're, they don't have the realistic idea of what that actually means. They are just like a, a reactive. Yes. Like you can touch that. You can see that. Exactly. Yeah. But so I started thinking, I just need to know that the thing that was so depressing to me is that I did have this knowledge base. I had this experience. I didn't know how to use it and that I had been good at it. Like, I wasn't like I was leaving because I crashed and burned in my career. Like, I had done everything right. And I theoretically should have been able to pop back into it. Like, that was so depressing to me. So I started thinking to myself, like, I need to hear from other women who have done something like this. And I, it can't just be having kids and rethinking your career. Like, that felt too limited to me. Like, that felt too small. Like, I need to know that there are women have faced a whole huge variety of adversity, like things that have happened in their personal lives. And I don't just want to know that they bounced back from it. I want to know they actually did something different because I don't see my political career as being available to me maybe ever again, but like definitely not right now because I would be so behind in what was current that I wasn't sure once I got off the train, I wasn't sure I'd be able to get back on. So I needed to know that I could do something that was different and that could utilize all of this knowledge, all of this experience that I had. And I thought, well, I need to hear that 
it's possible. Like I need to hear stories to know that it's actually possible. And I thought if I need it, I'm guessing there's other people that do too. And what do I know how to do? I know how to make podcasts. So I started this podcast called She Pivots where I do exactly this. Like I interview women. I have a huge variety who have gone through, we kind of have like the same format in all of the shows where we have a pre-pivot career, kind of like set the baseline of that experience. We have the personal intervening life event. So something that is outside of your control or maybe in your control, but that personally changed for you. And then we have the change of perspective and then the change of, maybe it's a full change of career, but maybe it's a pivot in place, like with your new perspective of thing that you did after and then finding success. Like, I don't just want to know that people are out there like spinning their wheels. I need to know that they did it and found success so that I feel like somebody did it. Like, I don't know that I'm going to find that, but I need to know somebody did it. Okay. Do you feel in this pivot of yours that you're doing what you were meant to be doing? Are you enjoying it? Do you feel like this is fulfilling that need right now? Or, or how do you like it? I guess. I love it. (laughs) I love it. I love interviewing interesting women who are telling their stories in ways they haven't before. So I love doing that. I feel like I spent my life on legislative change. And now I'm thinking about culture change by introducing these new narratives of new ways that we can look at the adversity that we've gone through or, you know, peeling back and understanding the story behind someone we think looks like has it all together. Like that, I really love doing. I think of this as building a media company with She Pivots as our core product. And I think that I'm building the right team behind that. And that I love doing, but I miss politics. I do. Well, you, but you have in, you know, just to point out some of the luminaries that you've interviewed, you know, you have Nancy Pelosi and Kamala Harris and women who you may not think of as people who have this relevant story, but they do. And so you've been able to meld the two in a really interesting way. Nancy Pelosi actually was one of the inspirations for this show because she didn't run for Congress until she had raised five kids. And she she is, I miss her so much. I love her so much. I love her. I miss her so much. She just made me so happy to know that she existed out in the world of politics and her not being like the main headline and knowing that she's like being the badass behind the scenes kind of bums me out. Yeah, but I love her happiness for her. I love her. Pivot. Yes, me too. Good for I love her. her. She's allowed her. to have a life. But I think the fact that she raised five kids as a homemaker, her words, and then ran for Congress, it couldn't happen today. Like, I just don't think we are. I think I think we've gone backwards in our thinking about what kind of skills women who are working in the home are honing and developing that we want to see some kind of outside the homework credentialing to run for office. Like, I don't think we, somebody today could have done what she did. And I think it's incredible. Like she was the most impactful speaker maybe ever. And her only work experience was being in Congress. Which is just so crazy to me. Cause if you think about it, right? Like we, I, we both have little kids and you see all these women or people we know who are like so smart. And I'm sure like this is who Nancy Pelosi was like a woman who like was so smart, so together, like was probably running the PTA, running the show, had like, you know, everything dialed in. And then she was like, okay, now I'm going to go do this on a bigger scale. And I know so many women where I've like seen them in my kid's school where I'm like, oh my God, you need to be like running something a lot bigger than what this is because you have 
And there's movies about it, right? This is a cliche, but it's true. Yeah. And I'm, I imagine Nancy Pelosi was like that lady at the PTA. Oh, she totally was. When <laughs> I was pregnant with my, I knew her from having worked on the repeal of Don't Ask, Don't Tell. And I saw her on a train, like an Amtrak between New York and DC when I was pregnant for the second time. So I went over to say hello to her. I told her I was pregnant. She loves kids. Oh my God, she loves kids. And she like pulled me really close and she was like, Emily. I was like, oh, I'm pregnant. having another baby. She goes, Emily, get someone to help you in your house. You have to have someone help you because after two kids, nobody will walk in that door. It's way too crazy. And I was like, that is incredible. I, the, I mean, leader, essentially leader of the free world just gave me like great advice. But <laughs> she's like, and that's why I'm trying to work on childcare and paid leave. Exactly. I like, know I how hard it is and, and nearly impossible to do what you're trying to do. I totally. It's like, she's like, it is too insane. But I do see, look, I think anybody can do whatever they want to do. They can have the PTA as their full-time job. They can say the kids full-time job, whatever they want to do. But what I do see a trend in politics that is encouraging is that women used to think of going into politics only as their second career. Like they would wait until their kids were older or even out of the house to run for office. And now women are running younger. They're running before they have kids, without kids, Congressman Lauren Underwood just wrote a really interesting article about how she ran before having a partner or kids. And she now realizes the sacrifice of being in Congress means that she might never. Mm-hmm. And like, is that worth it? But I don't think you have to give it up, but people are running younger. I mean, one of my best friends, her husband is running for Senate in Maryland right now. Will Jawando is 40 years old with four kids. Like if he gets elected to the Senate, he would not only be the youngest by far, <laughs> But like any anyone who is, quote, young in the Senate is probably mid-50s with kids probably in high school. And I can, there's only a handful of them I could name on one hand. So like to have someone in a lawmaking position that actually understands the challenges of having young kids right now, I think would be a game changer. And I love the fact that more women are actually running with younger kids. You've done work on getting women and younger people to like register to vote, run for office. Is that something that you would ever consider? Um, I don't. And I think it's because I've been so close to it that I actually know what it entails. This sounds like such a ridiculous thing to say, but like people do ask me in my district to run for Congress. And I'm flattered by all that for sure. It's just not where I want to make change right now. Like I'm thinking, like I've been federal my whole life. Like I've always thought about making change at this huge macro level and changing the country. And now I'm thinking really locally. Like what kind well, yeah, of impact can I have huge, super locally? It makes a huge if you're on the board of it, you know, the school board, you know, women don't run enough for like local city councils and stuff. Yeah. That's where like real change okay, so is made. <laughs> okay, good. I'm glad. That's a first step. I, okay, I'm so saying, I am starting there. <laughs> yeah. Okay. We're just, you're just taking a small step. You are a person who just seems to have like a huge appetite for ways in which you can get involved and make change. If there is a purposeful thing that you can be doing. Yes. If I see a pathway to it and I, and I also will find a pathway if it's something that I feel like is really meaningful and that I can like really put myself towards it. Like I won't get involved in something I can't actually like really dig in and really spend time in. But I have found that I think that more people have the capacity and the ability to it. They're just not sure where the first step is. And for whatever reason, I guess my personality is what it is. I don't really mind not having a first step. Like I'll find a first step. And what I have seen is that just by taking a first step and saying, well, I, and being open about the fact that I don't really know this arena that well, but I want to learn because I think there's meaningful change to be made here. 
I have seen that it opens the door for others to say, well, I haven't done that before, but I'm willing to try it. Or maybe it's not the same thing that I'm doing, but you know, something I've always done is I make calls into my member of Congress's office. I go and I visit my member of Congress and now I videotape it because I want people to see that it's super easy and it's not intimidating. And having been on the policy side of it, I know that it actually makes a big difference when they get calls and when they get visits, forget about it. Have you always like been so self-confident and able to just sort of like put it out there without fear? Because that's what it seems to me that you're able to do. And is that something that like you're just born with? Is that something that like you, your parents instilled in you? No, I haven't always been so confident. Honestly, I was really not confident, which I think was why I got so drawn to politics in such an intense way is because I really did not thrive academically, like in an academic environment. Like I thought I wasn't that smart. I felt like I had this big passion to change the world, but I didn't think that I was smart or competent enough to actually be able to do it. So when I worked on a campaign after I graduated college, that was the first time that I thought, oh, these skills that I have are actually applicable in the workplace. Like, you know, having an enthusiasm for things we're working on, like being able to like emotionally build a team and move us through a big project, like being able to just work long hours and throw myself into something. Like these are actually skills in a workplace that I just thought they were part of my personality and I didn't know they were. And it was the confidence of having worked on that campaign. And actually it was sort of a, the negative version of confidence. I don't know what that is, but that I had always dreamed about being a lawyer, but I didn't think I was smart enough to do it. And then having worked on a campaign, I worked with a lot of lawyers who I actually didn't think were that smart. (laughs) (laughs) And I thought, well, if they can do it, I can definitely do it. And I went to law school right after the campaign. I'm wondering like when you are interviewing people, what do you hear? Because you do, you have such a huge variety of people, different professions, points in their lives, personal stories. What's the through line that you hear from all these people, you know, regardless of the story? That I'm really interested in how their perspective changes. Like, what does that feel like to you? Because it feels different to everybody. To some people, it's like one aha moment. To one people, it's over the course of years, maybe even. But hearing them connect to that piece of themselves that say, yeah, I suddenly realized the thing that I was holding on to before I could let go of it, or it wasn't available to me, or I wanted to let go of it. And I was dying to let go of it. You know, hearing them talk through that emotional piece is really the core of the interviews for me and is really the core of the show. Like the details around it Yeah, they're important, but I'm really interested in how someone's perspective changed. Like, you know, in your own journey, you were talking about how you were able to refocus your goals and come up with new goals. Like, I didn't know how to do that when I was in that dark moment for myself. Like, I didn't know how to come up with new goals. And maybe that's the piece of why I'm always searching for it in the conversations, but it's the part that I definitely find is like the through line and I really connect to the most. And everybody's human. And that's the commonality is like everyone's human. It doesn't really matter who you are. Yeah, that every, and you don't know what people are going through. That's another piece of it is that, you know, I like to ask people what helped them come out of this moment. Like, was it something from within? Was it something external? What did your support network look like? Did you go to school to, you know, to find a different piece? But ultimately it's going through everyone's change in perspective and then how they actualize it and what tools they need to use to get there. But yeah, like it's it's the connecting humanity in all of us. Like we just don't know what's behind people's journeys. And we've lived in this society that only celebrates the highs. So people don't really open up about that part of it. They're like, yes, 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 I am a genius. Like I've yeah. had this in me always. <laughs> 
Yeah, exactly. No one, no one talks about like, you know, the dark nights of, of, you know, stress and fear and, you know, feeling like failure. Or if you do, you talk about it in the aggregate, but like yeah, not in the you specific. Through it. You're passing through. Yeah. You can only talk about how to pass through it and how, you know, entrepreneurship is hard, but like we're tested and we find all these strengths through it. Like, no, get specific with me. Like, when did you think you were going to lose your business? Like that, yeah. you know, where did you pull that line of credit from? Like, get specific with me here. I like that so much. And I do think there's there's a societal shift going on right now where we're talking really honestly and openly about things and people are rethinking a lot of the structures of like where they want to work, how they want to work. You know, I, I did something last week that said like, women left the workforce in the last year more than they did even like in the years before. Because I think we're like, you know, companies are pulling back on childcare. Companies are pulling back on remote work and and a lot of the benefits that they put out during the pandemic. And now you've like structured your life around that and you don't have childcare. You don't have the system put in place to go back to work, like you said, in the way that you used to work. And now women are rethinking their lives, their career paths. What do they really want? And it's like sort of happening, I think, in this moment more so than it in the last few years. Do you, do you feel the same way? Hugely so. Hugely so. Look, I think the the lockdown, the pandemic, all of it, I think it really broke us down to figure out, to really prioritize. Like so many things that we thought were real and were constants in our lives and couldn't change, they did change. And so it, re- it certainly did for me. And I see this reflected in a lot of other women. I hear this a ton and, you know, feedback we get from the podcast and the conversations that they are reprioritizing. And so they're thinking about what they want. And maybe the thing they thought was their goal wasn't. Like maybe it is going to change and they can let go of things they weren't ready to. And also they can find happiness in different places than they thought that they could have. And I actually think that we're at a really interesting moment right now that I, I don't know how to think about and I don't necessarily know how to analyze. Like I think we went through that dark place in 2020. I think we went through the great resignation in 2021, 2022, where women were actually leaving the workplace. And now offices are mostly back in and life is, you know, quote, back to normal, whatever that is. But we're different. Yeah. We are different. And I think that we haven't figured out how to sort through yet. That's, I think we're in a slightly different place than we've been in the last two years. Yeah, and it feels like it's like right now. Yeah. Like kind of happening right now. This is happening in real time. Yeah, kind of like we're figuring it out, writing the story as we go. Yeah. And creating the narrative. And And I think that's empowering if you think about it in an empowering way where you are able to say, okay, so like, what do I want it to be? What do I want this next chapter to look like, feel like? What are the priorities in my life? And women particularly, I mean, I don't know. I, I talk to a lot of women, so I can't speak that Same. way that for men. <laughs> but <laughs> women particularly, I think they they hold on to a lot of fear and self-confidence issues, but they're also more willing to take risks because they don't have as much ego involved. Oh, that's interesting. I don't know if I would compare between genders around like a ability to take risk, but I do think that women get forced into situations because of the presumption of childcare and home care that make it a lot easier to let go of something because you're breaking. Like I think women get forced into a breaking point. So I think in that sense, like it's a lot easier to make that decision. So I think a lot of some of the interesting conversations that have been happening over the last couple of years is, you know, in the cisgendered heterosexual relationships, 
the women did end up taking on more of the childcare, no matter who was working, no matter who was the breadwinner. And now I think economically, couples are reevaluating that to say, well, who is actually keeping us afloat economically? And is that, you know, when we know that women are out earning men in a lot of fields and have potential to, and how does that want to play out for us? Like how, I think that the gender norms around the work and the childcare, I think that's breaking down. I think in a good way that like it's open conversations. It's interesting. Most of my, I mean, many of my friends are gay and lesbian. And I feel like everyone I know that had children during the pandemic is all gay couples, gay men couples. Hmm. I know a lot. And that's been super interesting for me to see because I kind of always thought that in a same-sex relationship, like that sounds great that there's no presumption of who has what responsibilities and you could, you know, work it out amongst yourselves. Yes, it is true. But what I'm actually seeing is that it's it's opportunity for tension around pretty much everything because there's no presumption of who has what responsibilities. So it feels like everything's on the table to have like tension or try to figure out. And maybe that's the right way. Like maybe head on having a throw it all on the table without any like underwritten expectation because of whatever society and your programming told you. Yeah. But that's been an unexpected thing that I've seen. That's that's an interesting interesting perspective. And for you, how has your identity shifted as you've become a mother and now shifted your career and pivoted to this new version of yourself? How do you find yourself in this time? I mean, I feel like my identity is constantly shifting. And in other ways, I feel like I've never been more myself that I was proving something when I worked in politics. Like working in politics is a pretty serious, pretty serious community. You know, people like I like joke about this, but it's true that one of the reasons on my first date or on my, I think my third date that I felt like my husband was the one was because he talked about watching Jersey Shore without shame. And I also watched Jersey Shore without shame which was real anomaly in Washington. And I was like, oh yeah, I'm into this. But I felt like I really had to compartmentalize so many parts of myself. Even when I thought about myself as an on-air commentator, it was serious. It was structured. I was talking about policy. I was talking about the economics. I was, you know, talking numbers. Now I talk about what I think about, which is really taking some practice for me to do in an audio, like in a podcast form, like in a broadcast form. I do it all the time in my personal life, but you know, being this open and vulnerable is very different for me and very different than everything I've ever done. And in some ways I feel a little awkwardness around people who may have heard a lot of my podcasts and know things about, like, I feel their awkwardness talking to me. They're like, I know a lot of like very vulnerable things about you. And I'm still figuring that part out. Like I'm still like, it happened with a teacher at our school the other day. She was like, I teach third grade. I know you don't know me, but like, we can talk about, you know, this thing that you talked about on the podcast. And I was like, okay, this is, we'll just get coffee. Like this is feeling like a lot. <laughs> yeah. Unexpected. <laughs> I, unexpected. But I also feel like I've never been more myself. Like it turns out, like I didn't feel a connection to my kids when I had them. I didn't feel like a natural parent. I do now. I genuinely like spending time with them. I genuinely prioritize things to spend like one-on-one time individually with each of my kids you know, I've had purple hair for the last year just because it makes me happy. Like I love it. And I don't feel constrained by anybody else's version of what I'm supposed to be doing. Like now I am chasing what makes me happy, what makes my family happy and just, you know, fuck the rest of them. 
It's so funny because I've really only known you in this version and iteration of yourself with the purple hair and like, you know, just sort of like living out loud, like a very authentic version. And as you were speaking, I was trying to think of you wearing like a, a DC power suit. And it's so hard to imagine and I'm sure it must be. That. You know that I worked in military policy for the first couple of years I lived in Washington. And I had to wear, I had to go to the Pentagon once a week. I mean, I did go to the White House once a week for my entire career. But when I worked in, mil- I worked in military policy. I mean, I was DC power suit central. Wow. I love it. <laughs> okay. Can we shift gears for one second? Can we pivot? Um, can we pivot for one sec? Because I just want your opinion in the last few minutes while I'll keep you. Is... I had like kind of given up following the political news cycle for a little while because after I just, it's been like a relaxing vacation in some ways for my brain and like my wiring. Sometimes it just feels, you know, there's so much going on and I know you were and I was too fighting for paid leave and a lot of the things that did not happen and have been like really bummed out about Roe versus Wade, you know, all the things. I'm just wondering where you are right now, what you're thinking and what involvement you're having, because you still are involved in politics. You're still supporting candidates. You're still throwing events for candidates. So that's amazing because you have a voice and you have a position and people listen to you. So I'm listening. What's going on? Well, so for my own role, I do think about it differently. I think this is my role now is that I'm not in the room deciding how to design a campaign anymore, but I do have access to people in power. And so we can have that conversation and there's issues that I work on. I myself am getting pretty local. Like I'm starting a Moms Demand Action chapter where I live. I'm on the school board. I'm involved in local races like that. I'm getting pretty local on. I also live in a Republican congressional district and his entire staff will know me by the end of his two years. Like he will know that he cannot skate by on policies that do not represent people that live in the district. And those people are me. Like other people can agree with me or not, but they will know that I live here and they will know that I have positions that, that I do not agree with the positions. Oh my God, I love you. <laughs> I literally went into his office and I walked around the office. I've been thinking about doing like a whole online series where we're going to start driving around to his congressional offices. So I don't know. Do you know, I grew up in George Santos's district. That's where I grew up. There, Everyone's just like, what the fuck is happening? It it was like a huge surprise. I mean, it's, it was Denapoli. I mean, it's insane. It's insane. But, uh, but look, in in Congress, people are real, like when it comes to federal and Washington and Congress, like they kind of are banking on people not paying that close attention. So the more attention we are paying and the more we let them know that we are paying attention, you have no idea how little it takes for a member of Congress to feel accountable in their district. Like, not that much, actually. Well, it's like voting. It doesn't actually take that many votes to make a difference. It really doesn't. Like, you just kind of got to let them know that you're paying attention and what they're doing is not acceptable. I mean, on paid leave in particular, that was held up because of literally one senator, like actually Joe Manchin. So you just got to change the math in the Senate and control the House again. Like, that one's actually not a hard one. And the Biden administration is doing everything they can on that level. You know, getting a federal abortion protection into place. It's not going to happen through the courts again. It will only get passed through Congress and signed by a president. But like you have to make sure you have majorities in both houses to be able to do that and a president who will sign it into law. Will we have a federal abortion ban if the presidency changes? Probably. Probably. Like I think there will end up being exemptions in these states that have passed the wide sweeping abortion bans because 
one of those assholes is going to have a daughter or maybe a girlfriend who's going to need an abortion and is going to realize, or by the way, just has pregnancy complications or a miscarriage and realize, oh my God, they almost died. So I think some more exemptions are going to be written into those states, but it shouldn't have to come to that and women are going to die. So it's not like a great outcome. I mean, you know, is is Biden going to get reelected? Like, I don't know which question you want me to answer. I don't know. Like, what don't do you know. think about, like, what can, well, A, is Biden going to get reelected? And B, what can we be doing now to, if you are politically minded, if this is interesting to you, if you are concerned about the future, what can we be doing except for, like, praying that he stays alive? Praying that he stays alive. That's a good one. Look, I think if it's Biden versus Trump, I think Biden probably will win again. But a lot of laws have been passed in a lot of states that limit access to ballots. So people really have to be on top of if they are registered. You know, sometimes voter like what voter registration, what they do in the states is they just they purge the voter rolls. Like they just go through to see who they think died or moved. And so you actually might not be registered in the way that you think you are. Like, that's why the first ask is always check if you're registered, even if you think that you are, making sure you're registered in the right place. Like, I'd say that's a good way to start. Um, But also just figuring out, like, let yourself be known. Like, don't be afraid to step into the arena, which I know can feel a little bit scary. And like, maybe it starts like getting three friends together and like posting the same picture on Instagram together. Like, you know, I am very concerned about gun violence in the country. And I actually have worked on guns since now. It's crazy that it's been 10 years, but I've been working on guns since the shooting in Sandy Hook. And the country is changing, actually. And it's changing because more people are saying, I'm not I'm not who your stereotype is of who you think you can ignore. And I'm concerned about gun violence. And that actually is where I think the strength of Moms Demand Action is in particular, is that when I started working in politics, and even when I started working on the Manchin Toomey background checks bill after the Sandy Hook shooting, there was this idea that it was only the really fringe left that cared about what we would have at that time talked about as gun control. And I would still say we need gun control, but now we talk about as gun violence prevention. And that perception has changed. And so like you cannot be ignored, but the center right of the Republican party has moved partly because of who they had in leadership, partly because of gerrymandering. So what that means is that there is a principle when every 10 years, congressional lines are redrawn and state legislative lines are redrawn based on the census. So based Which on is like, why it's so important to do your census. You got to do your census because they, they cut up the d- districts depending on how many people live in the state and where they live. And a accepted Supreme Court constitutional principle of gerrymandering is that you are allowed to draw lines to protect incumbents which sounds incredibly not fair to me, but it is in there. And so what has happened is that- It's a constitutional protection to gerrymander? It has been read into it by the Supreme Court in cases that have gone up to that. Both sides gerrymander, let's be- So both sides gerrymander. What has happened from, there was a massive Republican wave in 2010 in state legislatures. And state legislatures are where the, the lines are drawn in terms of congressional district and state legislative districts. There was a very big wave in 2010. So Republicans controlled the legislatures when the last 10 years of lines were drawn. They did not flip enough. What we did see in those legislatures after the 2010 was that Republicans went gangbusters on it. They were like, this is allowed. I am drawing the lines that include my district of my people that will vote for me. And Democrats said, I'm either going to put it to an independent council or I'll try to be a little more fair about it. And like it, it was not playing by their rules. And it's resulted in very gerrymandered districts where the majority of Republicans in Congress 
represent districts that are hard right. There's very few that are in the middle anymore because they went and they went out and they found their people. And the true same is true of Democrats. They found districts that were leaning left. And so they kind of like packed them in. But there's very few that are in the center anymore. But so there's a long way to get back to gun control. But I would love there to be a bipartisan solution. It is not where the elected representatives of the Republican Party are right now. It may be where people who are Republican feel, but it's not where the electeds are right now. So like my on that issue in particular, or on an issue we want to move, I would say, let your representatives know it's something that you care deeply about. Reproductive rights is the same thing. It's not where the people are. It's where the elected officials and the money is. Absolutely. But I think that this is why it's so important that you do things like you are doing where you're getting involved on the local level, because the reason that the 2010 red wave happened was because the Republicans had a strategy to do just that, to get in on the local level and win all the seats. And so that's then you get to change the rules on a local level. This is very new. Right. No, no. But this is not ancient history. This is happening right now with the moms. With the judges, too. And the judges. The judges and the Trump did with the judges. Exactly. Trump put in a massive amount of judges. Biden's actually been doing a good job on judges. This is why we need to find Steinbeck in the Senate to be confirming them, because Biden's like moving them along, Biden and Schumer. But what's happening right now with Moms of Liberty is that they're running and winning in school boards under the idea of, well, you don't want your hunky transgender formerly son in the relay race or whatever it is. Like they're running on issues of like trans students and they're running on hatred and hatred on hatred. And they're winning in a lot of places you wouldn't expect them to be winning. So Moms of Liberty is doing it right now. Oh, okay. <laughs> On that note, get involved. Vote. Join your get school involved. board. No City council. Small. Go to the meetings. Make sure they know who you are. Like the women who are on, who are listening to this podcast, the women who are listening to your podcast are people who are so educated, who are so smart, who have a voice who have the ability to make people listen to them. So make people listen by speaking out. Just be for something yourself. I actually think that's like the biggest thing that you can do. Sorry, I should have had a more concise answer for this. Just be for something and don't be afraid to be for something. Like I'm not afraid to say that I want to limit guns. I'm, I want, I'm not afraid to say that I think that we should have abortion without limitations on it. I don't think there should be caveats for abortion. And I'm not afraid to say that. And I hope that that makes space for others to say, okay, I actually do think that too. Yeah. Thank you for speaking up. Thank you for being here. This was so fun. We could have gone on forever, but we're going to have to wrap this up so that we can go on with our days. I, I think you're fantastic. Oh, Jenny, thank you so much. Thank you for all the even. Thank you for making a space for this. Sorry, I could really get into the nitty gritty. You see, I miss it. I miss the politics. I, I understand. I enjoy the nitty gritty. And I think once you have that in you and you know it, it's like I have an obsession with the news and like I watch it and follow it and like see how they're crafting it and the narratives and the storylines and you know, some of it makes me really like depressed, but some of it uh, is just it's fun. You know, yeah. It's, you just yeah. give it up. It's fun. It totally is. And I also, wait, I just have to tell you this. I have to laugh. When we were talking about, you know, the connecting on the humanity on the guests in the podcast, one of my high profile guests just texted me, I need a man. Do you have anyone you can set me up with? So, you know, like once we're really connecting, like we're so in. Like, <laughs> Oh, I love We're connecting that. on the humanity. We're connecting on every level. <laughs> okay, good for her. And I just, I, I think it's so fabulous that you've always had 
a purposeful life path that you've always put purpose and things that you authentically care about in the forefront of your work and your life and the things that you, you dedicate your time to. So it's better for all of us and it's a great model for how people should live their life. Oh, that's so nice. I mean, it feels good, you know? Yeah. And that's why you're doing the right thing. All right. Thank you so much, Emily. Thank you. Thank you so much for joining the conversation. For more, you can follow along at thesecondshift.com. Please rate, review, subscribe, and help us make work work for you and for all women.